Ours is a people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class and based on the worker-peasant alliance. Mao Zedong. Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, with Uncle Ian. Today's matchup features two religious dictators. We've got Pope Alexander VI, aka Rodrigo Borgia, up against Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We have created a knockout competition to determine the single most significant dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two dictators where we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of each battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. Up first is Pope Alexander VI, whose rule is full of bribery, extortion, and sinful sex. He's considered the most corrupt pope in the history of the Catholic Church. Was he really that bad? Uncle Ian, please tell us about Pope Alexander VI. He started life as Rodrigo de Longcol born on the 1st of January 1431 in Valencia. At the time Valencia was in Aragon, we now know that as modern-day eastern Spain. He would become Pope on the 11th of August 1492. In his younger days, he studied law at Bologna. He adopted his mother's family name. The reason he adopted his mother's family name is because her brother Alonso became Pope Calixtus III, so better known now by that family name of Borgia. In 1456, still only 25, he became a cardinal. It was his uncle who promoted him to cardinalship, getting the nepotism out of the way early. In 1457, he became vice-chancellor of the Holy Roman Church, very important administrative and diplomatic role based in Rome itself. 1468, at last, he was ordained as a priest. He was appointed bishop at Albano, which is near Rome. He's become a cardinal before he became a priest. Yeah, he was certainly uh, ambitious in his progress through positions within the church. Let's talk about nepotism. My pocket Macquarie dictionary tells me (laughs) that nepotism is the practice of giving a job or position to a relative or friend rather than to a person with better qualifications. And the 15th and 16th century popes defined what we still know as nepotism today. My favourite example is that the brother of one of Alexander's mistresses, his name was Alessandro, he was appointed to be a cardinal. Then when he became a pope, he in turn appointed two of his nephews to be cardinals. They were aged 16 and 14 at the time. That's phenomenal. If you've wondered about nepotism in the workplace, then look to 15th century Rome for the best example. So, a little bit about Rodrigo's character before we look at the next step in his career. (laughs) Having served for many years as Vice-Chancellor of the Holy Roman Church under five different popes, only one of whom was actually his uncle, with extensive Vatican experience. He was well-read, he was an excellent speaker, he was known as cheerful, and perhaps one of the reasons why he was known as cheerful is because... He was also attractive to the ladies. One of the contemporary sources uses the term magnet. On the 25th of July, 1492, 
Pope Innocent VIII died, there were three main candidates to take over from Pope Innocent. The bribery, it was really about who could spend the most money to encourage the cardinals to to vote in particular ways. There were various stories of trailer loads of money and gold being showered on the cardinal as part of the voting. As it turned out, Rodrigo was able to um, basically outspend his competitors and he became pope. Bribed his way into the papacy, he outspent everybody. He gave Cardinal Sforza four mules carrying silver for his vote. I mean, I don't know how much silver a mule can carry, but it sounds like a lot of money. It's noted as one of the most corrupt conclaves in the history of the papacy. He chose the name Alexander VI as his papal name. The reaction, though, to his appointment was actually quite positive, and that was because of his long career in the Vatican. He was 61 by this stage, and he worked in the Vatican for 35 years, so his administrative and diplomatic experience was seen as crucial to be able to lead the church and lead the papal states. Before we go any further, we should mention the term the papal states. In the 15th century, there was no such thing as Italy. The papal states in central Italy lasted until 1870, when Italy unified into a single country. The papal states were sovereign territories under the direct rule of the pope. So he wasn't just a religious leader, he was a head of state as well. The papal states concept started all the way back in the 8th century when our old friends Pepin and Charlemagne defeated the Lombards and handed that territory over to the Pope. So the, the papal states in central Italy were a key element of papal rule because maintaining the security of the papal states was a major papal responsibility. So some of the elements of his reign, in 1494, he was responsible for the signing of the Treaty of Tordesillas. So Spain and Portugal, they were keen to have an agreement around territory in the New World. So the treaty that got the Pope's blessing ran a line down the Atlantic Ocean, and that meant that all lands to the west of that line became Spanish, and all lands to the east of that line became Portuguese. As it turned out, the line that they thought they were drawing through the Atlantic Ocean actually went through the easternmost part of South America, i.e. the Brazilian coast. And so that land remained Portuguese territory. Which is why in Brazil they speak Portuguese, and in the rest of South America they speak Spanish because of Rodrigo's (laughs) inability to read maps. I don't think he was the actual cartographer concerned. One of the elements that came up very early in European colonisation in the New World was the concept of the oppression of the native inhabitants. Alexander didn't outwardly support the slavery of the inhabitants of the New World, but didn't speak out about it particularly strongly. It appears that the Spanish colonisers had indicated to the Pope that it wasn't actually slavery, it was just merely gathering the natives together so that we could more easily convert them to Christianity. There was internal unrest. The Orsini family, they have three popes in their family and several cardinals, very rich family in the north, were constant rivals for leadership in the church. And the Colonna, Svorza and Medici families similarly saw the church as an opportunity not just for power, but also for wealth. Early in his reign, he started stacking the deck. He created 12 new cardinals. One of those was his son. Yes, the Pope had a son. In fact, he had more than one. We'll talk about them shortly. 
um, his son Cesare, and his mistress's brother. Yes, he had a mistress. They both became cardinals to help give Alexander greater support amongst the cardinals. It's a great dictator move. I've got 100 cardinals, 50 are opposed to me. I'll just create 20 new cardinals. The College of Cardinals didn't have an upper limit. It's not like being a member at the cricket ground with only so many seats. Yes, that is annoying. It's a bit like there's no rule that a horse can't play football. And so you end up with that terrible movie where that horse, I think he's kicking field goals. So the concept is, well, there's no rule written down that a horse can't play football. And so if it's not written down, you can get away with it. And that's what the Pope has done here. Look, I never thought in a dictator podcast we'd be using the terms horse and football in the same sentence. Or the cricket ground. Good point. Also in 1494, one of the biggest challenges to Alexander's reign was the war with France. Remember that Alexander is a head of state as well as the head of the church. And the French king, Charles VIII, had claims to the kingdom of Naples. He brought a force with him, crossed the Alps, and at the end of 1494, entered Rome, had himself crowned as king of Naples. Originally, the inhabitants of Naples were very sympathetic towards the French, but they started to realise that one oppressor was just as bad as another. Alexander put together a group called the Holy League, and that included the Holy Roman Empire. It included the forces of Milan, Venice, and also Spanish forces, which forced Charles and his troops back to France. But it had shown the vulnerability of the Italian peninsula to invasion, be it from France or from the recently unified Spain, and this ongoing threat would test his diplomatic skills throughout his papacy. Other internal unrest from the north in Florence, there was a friar who was brave enough to speak out against the corruption and the favoritism and the financial extravagance that was friar savonarola he was tolerated for a little while but eventually not only the florentines but also the pope grew a bit tired of him and he ended up being executed for being brave enough to speak out he got the excommunication treatment first apparently that was enough and then he got hanged you could argue he did get a warning but so alexander acknowledged four children cesare giovanni lucretia and joffrey Biographers recognise at least a further six children, all from various mistresses. Yes, he did not take his vow of celibacy very seriously. Giovanni was found floating in the river Tiber in 1497. His throat was slit and he'd been stabbed on nine occasions. So it's unlikely to have been suicide. Mm. Not 100% sure whether it was for political reasons or for personal reasons, it may have been a jealous husband, or it may have been an enemy of his father. It may also have been his brother. His brother Cesare, the one who'd been appointed Archbishop of Valencia at the age of 17, and that was only maintaining the family tradition because Rodrigo had inherited that archbishopship from Alonso when Alonso became Pope. Cesare is known to history as an assassin and a philanderer, not necessarily at the same time, He murdered his brother-in-law. He may well have murdered his brother. He was certainly an agent of Alexander in removing bishops and other church officials who spoke out against Alexander's rule. Alexander had a well-known daughter. Her name was Lucrezia. And I think she was known because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Being the daughter of a pope, she was used primarily for political and alliance reasons. She was married on multiple occasions depending on whose favour the Pope was trying to win by marrying his daughter into that particular family. It does give us an insight into the financial extravagance of the regime. Lucretia's third wedding was funded 
by selling cardinal appointments. In the lead up to her wedding, Alexander appointed nine cardinals, five of whom were Spanish. The going price for a cardinal appointment at that time was 130,000 ducats, and that money went straight towards paying for Lucrezia's third wedding. Classic example of the kleptocracy that was in place at the papacy at the time. Lucrezia was considered a bit of a vixen. There was a bit of a habit for her and her father's enemies to be poisoned. Not that I'm pointing any fingers, (laughs) but it's just a coincidence. They all managed to end up dead. Fun fact about Lucrezia Borgia. She's the beauty depicted in the famous Botticelli painting, The Birth of Venus, which is the naked lady coming out of the clamshell that you might see at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. As Pope, Alexander VI did make efforts to reform the church. He also wanted to place a limit of one bishop appointment per church official, and he also wanted to make more strict moral codes within the church. When I look at the history of his reign and the history of his family, he probably should have started this within his own household before starting to try and implement these reforms into the overall church. I mean, he loved orgies, absolutely loved orgies. There was that night, the famous um, Banquet of the Chestnuts, in which he hired 50 prostitutes, and then him and his son, Cesare, competed to see who could get through the most prostitutes on that night. (laughs) What a father-son relationship that is. Yes, indeed. Johann Bouchard, who was the Pope's master of ceremonies, wrote in his diary of Pope Alexander, There is no longer any crime or shameful act that does not take place in public in Rome and in the home of the pontiff, who could fail to be horrified by the terrible, monstrous acts of lechery that are committed openly in his home with no respect for God or man. Rapes and act of incest are countless, and great throngs of courtesans frequent St. Peter's Palace. Pimps, brothels, and whorehouses are to be found everywhere. That mention of incest relates to the rumours circulating that both Alexander and his son Cesare were sleeping with the daughter-slash-sister Lucrezia. Alexander is also remembered for his patronage of the arts, especially in the areas of painting and theatre. One of the acts that really riled people up, one of his mistresses used as a model in depicting the Virgin Mary and people just couldn't cop having to stare at this amazing painting of the Virgin Mary who looked exactly like the Pope's mistress. Yeah, that's a difficult one to spin. He's also remembered for his benign treatment of the Jews. He did welcome to the Papal States thousands and thousands of Jews who'd been expelled from Spain, from Portugal, and from Provence. Scott, do you know why Provence is called Provence? I'm going to have to guess it has something to do with the Roman Empire. That's correct. It was, in fact, the first official province of the Roman Empire when they started expanding out of the Italian peninsula. So we've already touched on some of the things that we believe made Pope Alexander a dictator. Certainly the family involvement from his uncle all the way through to his sons. And he is one of the few popes to have to his credit a descendant who became pope, given that it's not meant to work that way. So Pope Innocent X, who'd become pope in 1644, was a great, great, great grandson of Alexander VI. Now, Scott, I don't really think these days one of the things you put on your resume when you're applying for the pope job is to say that your great-great-grandfather had been Pope. I don't think it's meant to work that way. Not at all. 
the personal aggrandizement is certainly that element of enriching himself and enriching his family. There is actually not a lot of evidence that he was particularly religious. He saw the papacy as an administrative task and a diplomatic task, a task to give him the status of being a head of state as well as the head of the church, but also an opportunity to become rich. In 1503, age of 72, Alexander and Cesare were hosting a dinner. They both got sick and the story goes around that in fact they'd intended to poison their guest but that they had the wrong drink themselves and got poisoned. That's why you always have to bring your own stubby holder (laughs) to the event. (laughs) Yes, which was my glass? Cesare recovered, Alexander didn't. Within 24 hours, rapid decomposition had set in. It is possible that could have been caused by the poisoning or could have been caused by the summer heat. Either way, Alexander had been Pope for 11 years. He was succeeded by Julius II, who was his bitter enemy, Della Rivera, who had supported the French invasion back in 1494. Again, Della Rivera had seen that the French may end up helping him to the papacy. That was one of the reasons why he supported Charles VIII of France. So the Borgia family, always seen as outsiders in Rome because of their Spanish background, go down in history as providing three popes. We remember them now for their bribery, their corruption, their loose morals, and their preparedness to kill religious rivals in order to maintain power. Yes, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Pope Alexander VI was the first and last Spanish pope. Yes, he didn't endear the concept of Spanish popes to the hierarchy of the church, despite all the cardinals he appointed. So it's time to introduce our second dictator up against Pope Alexander VI. We have the Iranian dictator Ayatollah Khomeini. Khomeini was the supreme ruler of the Islamic Republic of Iran from 1979 to 1989. He orchestrated the Iranian Islamic Revolution, the popular uprising that established an Islamic theocratic republic that still exists today. How did Khomeini start a revolution? What is life like under an Islamic theocracy? And why is there such great tension between Iran and the West? Khomeini was born in 1900, 1901, or 1902. We're not sure. May 27, 1900 is the most accepted date for his birth. His birthplace was the town of Khomeini, about 180 miles south of Tehran, the capital of Iran. His father was a mullah, which is a religious leader in the Islamic faith. Khomeini's father claimed to be descended from the Prophet Muhammad. When Khomeini was a baby, his father was murdered in a fight. When Khomeini was young, he was an inveterate reader, very keen poet, also very well read. His, his literary interests were very broad. As part of his seminary studies, he actually studied Aristotle and Plato, although he doesn't seem to have taken away too many of their ideas about democracy and the will of the people. He liked Plato's ideas of the philosopher king which he took very seriously as we'll see but along with being a big reader he was as a child was very keen on sports and games and was considered the leapfrog champion of the town of Comain. he would uh, give up his leapfrogging <laughs> as an adult is this the first time in liberty dies with thunderous applause that we've mentioned leapfrogging yeah, i think so Khomeini studied theology 
Khomeini is described as having menacing black eyebrows. He wore all black clothes and a black turban, accentuating his unmistakable white beard. At 27, he marries a girl who was either 13 or 15 at the time. He grew to the highest possible rank in the Shia clergy, the Grand Ayatollah. Khomeini was a fundamentalist and an Islamist. He saw the world in the religious perspective of the Shiite branch of Islam and believed that the solutions to all the world's conceivable problems were outlined 13 centuries ago in the Quran. An Islamist is not just a Muslim. You can be a completely devout Muslim and not be an Islamist. Islamism is the desire to impose Islam over society. So, let's have a look at Iran. Iran was previously known as Persia, is a large Shia Muslim country in the Middle East between Turkey, Iraq to the west, and Afghanistan and Pakistan to the east. It also has a border with Turkmenistan, but no one knows where that is, so why bring it up? So Iran had a king, he's known as the Shah of Iran, and he occupied the Nadari throne. Uncle Ian, where does the term Shah come from? Shah is one of those terms, Scott, that is derived from the word Caesar. Like Kaiser and Tsar. The Shah was seen as arrogant and out of touch. He attempted to liberalise and modernise the heavily conservative country. He wanted to end the control of the religious leaders over society. From 1941, Khomeini lambasted the pro-Western Reza Shah, declaring, The orders of the dictatorial state of Reza Shah are valueless and all laws approved by the parliament must be burned. The public voted in a democratic government led by Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh nationalised the oil industry, removing it from British ownership. The British weren't happy about this. And in 1953, the CIA and MI6 orchestrated a coup against Mossadegh's government. The coup left the Shah with ultimate power as an absolute monarch. The newly empowered Shah launched the White Revolution to modernise Iranian society and the economy. He legislated equal rights for women, and women even wore miniskirts in the Iranian capital. He seized land and diminished the influence of clerics. He encouraged rapid urbanisation, pushing people from the countryside into modern urban Iranian cities. He even introduced some left-wing policies, such as profit-sharing. He hoped to appease the communists, who, during the Cold War, were seen as the greatest threat to the country. We'll find out he was quite wrong. All these reforms were implemented against public opinion. Complete political repression was needed to implement the change. Opposition parties were outlawed. The Shah's secret police identified and detained opponents, who were then tortured. So his regime was an authoritarian dictatorship that allowed no room for public involvement in politics. And he had pissed off everyone, from the religious conservatives to the communists. So he's liberalising the country with an iron fist. Whether they liked it or not. Khomeini was imprisoned for demanding the army overthrow the Shah. He was released and then imprisoned again for criticising the Shah's policies. He was brought before the Prime Minister and refused to retract his statements. The Prime Minister slapped him across the face and sent him into exile. This Prime Minister was killed three weeks later by a Khomeini supporter. Khomeini left for Turkey, then to Iraq. Throughout the 1970s, Iranians became increasingly frustrated with their lack of political power. 
The growing economy left many people behind. Iran had changed from a traditional, conservative, and rural society to one that was industrial, modern, urban, and far more secular and liberal than the Iranians would tolerate. The Shah was seen as an American puppet, and his ties with Israel fueled his unpopularity with the Iranian people, who didn't particularly like the Israelis. And one of Khomeini's quotes from that time denounced the Shah as being a Jewish agent and an American serpent whose head must be smashed with a stone. Thousands of tapes and print copies of Khomeini's speeches were smuggled back into Iran, although Khomeini never campaigns for an Islamist theocracy. He only promises to end the autocracy of the Shah regime and give power to an elected government, allaying the fears of interfering Western governments. The secular intellectuals got into bed with Khomeini and the communists jumped in too. The revolution begins with a mass protest in 1978 with Khomeini now in France after being kicked out of Iraq by our old friend Saddam Hussein. In January 1978, thousands of Islamic students took to the streets. They were joined by thousands more Iranians, mostly unemployed immigrants from the countryside. The protest revealed the extent of the Shah's authoritarian streak. The government cracked down hard, killing protesters. This only proves the protesters' point. And the culture demands 40 days of mourning. And then on the 41st day, they held mass rallies to honour the dead and protest the Shah. This would lead to another round of shootings. And then the same thing would occur 40 days later. So this cycle would just go on and on. By December 10th, hundreds of thousands of protesters took to the streets in Tehran. In January 1979, the Shah and his family fled Iran. Uh, officially though, <laughs> he was described as a vacation. So Khomeini flew into Iran and was met with wild jubilation on February of 1979. Over one million people demonstrated in Tehran celebrating Khomeini's arrival and they all screamed, death to the Shah. This was not a coup orchestrated by a small group. It was a genuine popular revolution. Islamist demonstrators smashed alcohol bottles and ripped up fashion catalogues of women in revealing clothing. Ten days later, Iran's armed forces declared their neutrality and the regime had no legs to stand on. This is not just the end of the Shah's regime, it is the end of a 2,500-year-old monarchy. So, Khomeini became supreme leader of Iran with a parliament beneath him. The parliament and president are subservient to the will of the supreme leader. Scott, one of the elements of dictator bingo is the election you have when you're not really having an election. So early in 1979, the new Islamic Republic ran a referendum. The question in that referendum was, should the monarchy be abolished in favour of an Islamic government? The Iranian Electoral Commission reported that the question was answered in the affirmative, with a 98% result. Wow. Now, those who've listened to our retrospective episode will be aware that anything above 65% is probably a questionable result. My theory is you probably don't need an electoral commission at all. Yes, very good. Even the way the question is worded. It's not like, what type of government would you like? Who would you like to run it? It's, would you like to get rid of this incredibly unpopular dictator and replace it with something vague? Khomeini completely backtracked on his promises. He never handed over power to a democratic government. He took state control of the media and has made any criticism of his rule considered an act of treason. He declared, 
I repeat for the last time, abstain from holding meetings, from blathering, from publishing protest. Otherwise, I will break your teeth. He ruthlessly consolidated power. He publicly executed the Shah's officials, as well as homosexuals, adulterers, and prostitutes. 7,000 people were killed following the revolution. Many were stoned or burned to death. When a power struggle emerged between the mullahs and the revolution's secular leaders, Khomeini's mullahs kicked the president out of office. The communists and secularists who helped him overthrow the Shah were now even further from power. In August, he told them, You intellectuals do not want us to go back 1,400 years. You, you want freedom. Freedom for everything. Freedom of parties. You who want all the freedoms, you intellectuals. Freedom that will corrupt our youth. Freedom that will pave the way for the oppressor. Freedom that will drag our nation to the bottom. The new official country name of the Islamic Republic of Iran is not just for show. Iran is a theocracy. Khomeini and other clerics have final say on appointments, policy, and control the military. Western music is banned. Khomeini likened music to opium, also saying, it stupefies persons listening to it and makes their brain inactive and frivolous. Very harsh. Alcohol is made illegal and Sharia law is implemented, meaning thieves can have their hands chopped off and the morality police flog people with 100 lashes for immoral behavior. Women in Iran are second-class citizens. Rape within marriage is legal. Khomeini pronounced, a woman must surrender to her husband for any pleasure. Women's role was limited to childbearing. Khomeini even closed childcare centers because he believed mothers must raise their children. They are banned from attending men's sporting stadiums. Women are unable to pass on their Iranian nationality to their children. In Iran, it is illegal for women to sing because, and I'm quoting here, a woman's voice can be erotic. There's also aggressive discrimination in inheritance and divorce laws. Women are unable to leave the country without the permission of their husbands. In 2015, the captain of Iran's female soccer team, Nilofar Ardalan, didn't play in the international tournament because her husband forbade her from travelling. I'm impressed they even have a team. All women are forced to wear Islamic dress by law. Women must wear a chador, which is one level above the hijab on the oppression scale. It's a full-length cloak and veil that covers everything except the hands and face. Here's a recount of an Iranian woman who was first excited about the revolution, but then slowly recognises the erosion of women's rights. Every day, we were worried about the things that were happening. Then there was talk about the hijab. We said, no, impossible. We're not going to accept that dress code. And the people there were calling us prostitutes. Iranian women have gone from wearing miniskirts to being forced to completely cover themselves almost overnight. There are some courageous activists who have protested the veil law, but are immediately arrested and imprisoned. The treatment of women following the revolution is the basis of the Margaret Atwood novel, The Handmaid's Tale, and the subsequent TV show. It's pretty much the same story as Iran, but she just sets the story in America, which gets people far more interested. <laughs> Forced child marriage in Iran is also legal. Girls under 13 can marry if showing signs of puberty. Girls as young as nine have been forced to marry. Each year, 45,000 girls under the age of 18 are married in Iran. One Ayatollah defended the practice saying, Setting a legal age for girls to marry is against religious regulations since only their fathers have the right to decide when to give away their daughters, regardless of their age. In Khomeini's book, Tarir al-Wasila, Khomeini wrote, A man can have sexual pleasure from a child as young as a baby. However, he should not penetrate. Sodomizing the child is okay. 
If the man penetrates and damages the child, he should be responsible for her subsistence all her life. This girl, however, does not count as one of his four permanent wives. As young as a baby. This guy's running a country. The situation for homosexuals in Iran is far less complicated. Homosexuality is illegal and gay people are put to death. Iran has a higher rate of male to female transgender people as it's more acceptable to become a woman and have a relationship with a man than to be a homosexual man. In fact, Uncle Ian, Iran has the second highest rate of sex change operations in the world. Do you know who's number one? Thailand. Laws were also written to increase Muslim conversion. So Muslim converts receive all of their parents' inheritance. So if you convert to Islam, you get all your brothers and sisters' share of the inheritance. It's a good deal. People of the Zoroastrians and Baha'i faith have been heavily persecuted. He executed hundreds of the Baha'i leaders. And Uncle Ian, do you remember which dictator we've discussed who was a Zoroastrian? It was Xerxes. Of because that's how old that religion is that it predates Islam. Yeah. A Khomeini had no interest in improving the economy. He believed the earthly matters of poverty and prosperity were immaterial. He once said, I cannot believe that the purpose of all these sacrifices was to have less expensive melons. Fair enough. In 1980, our old friend Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, invades Iran. You can learn more about Saddam Hussein in episode 4. It was a horrific war fought at a stalemate. It was a World War I-style trench warfare, but also with planes dropping poison gas. Khomeini refused to give an inch of soil, calling peace a deadly poison. Poverty increased 45%, and up to 4 million Iranians fled. The war lasted eight years until a ceasefire was finally accepted. Relations with the West were, and still are, entirely antagonistic. Uncle Ian, can you tell us about the Iranian hostage crisis? So at the end of 1979, the 4th of November, protesting students occupied the US Embassy. The occupation of the US Embassy in Tehran lasted for 444 days. Over 60 Americans were held hostage. It was seen as an act of retaliation for the United States having allowed the Shah to obtain medical treatment. The hostage crisis continued throughout 1980 and President Carter was unable to resolve the crisis in an absolute slap in the face to Carter. The final stage of the release of the hostages happened on the 20th of January 1981, minutes after Reagan was inaugurated as president. The um, outcome of the hostage crisis was the complete inability of the United States and Iran to have any sort of diplomatic relations because they're keen to pick winners in regions, as we've seen in South America, United States support for Iraq increased in proportion to its anger at the Iranian regime, and that was a big factor in the Iran-Iraq war. The big winner of the Iranian hostage crisis was Saddam Hussein. Khomeini called America the great Satan from which all the little Satans of this world spring. The second breaking point with the West was the Salman Rushdie affair. In 1989, Khomeini went on radio and declared a fatwa, ordering the execution of British author Salman Rushdie. Rushdie's novel, The Satanic Verses, Khomeini declared to have blasphemed against the faith. I'll quote Khomeini here. 
the author of the Satanic Verses book, which is against Islam, the Prophet, and the Quran, and all involved in its publication who were aware of its contents, are sentenced to death. I call on zealous Muslims to execute them wherever they find them, so that no one will dare insult the Islamic sanctions. Whoever is killed on this path will be regarded as a martyr, God willing. That would be so wild. Imagine if the Pope were to order all Catholics worldwide to kill you. You're walking down the shops and you have to fight off a horde of Brazilians to get a sandwich. Look out, Dan Brown. <laughs> Uncle e, what's the collective noun for a group of Brazilians? A wax. <laughs> A wax of Brazilian. I was going to say a, a carnival. What about a football team? Yeah, that's true. Many Muslims tried to kill Rushdie, but were unsuccessful. However, the man who translated the book into Japanese was murdered. Uncle Ian, who would you declare a fatwa against? People who hold rallies at which lots of people get together in a very small space and catch virus from each other would probably be very high on my list. <laughs> Fair enough. I think I'd declare a fatwa against people who bring speakers to the beach. I don't need to hear Pitbull's discography every January. Uncle Ian's looking confused because I don't think he knows who Pitbull is. He's a terrible musician, is the answer to that. I sound a bit like the Ayatollah. Is he better than Kanye then? No, no, no. No one's better than Kanye, Uncle Ian. Is Kanye still running for president? Kanye's still running. I think you have to write his name in in certain states. He was a bit lazy with his paperwork. So he should have taken a lesson from Pope Alexander VI, who was a very able administrator. <laughs> That's right. The Rushdie affair ended diplomatic relations between Iran and Britain. They would eventually restore relations in 1998 under the precondition that Iran ends the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. So the new leader of Iran, Mohammad Khatami, publicly declared his government would neither support nor hinder attempts to murder Rushdie. (laughs) How good is that? The old, well, we're not in favour of it, but we're not against it. The the fatwa you have when you're not having a fatwa. Oh, God. Iran still sees itself as the enemy of the West. Tension is very high as they try to develop nuclear weapons. Uncle Ian, we haven't broken out your off-air catchphrase, but now might be a good time to say... What could possibly go wrong? Martyrdom craving religious fanatics with nuclear missiles. Can't wait. And back in the early years of the 21st century, when the then US president declared the axis of evil with North Korea, Iraq and Iran, we're still not sure whether Iran was happy or not with that level of pronouncement. Ayatollah Khomeini died on the 3rd of June 1989 after five heart attacks. His funeral was attended by three and a half million Iranians and was absolute chaos. People were desperate to see the body during the funeral procession. Here's the New York Times author describing the events. The body of the Ayatollah wrapped in a white burial shroud fell out of the flimsy wooden coffin. In a mad scene, people in the crowd reached to touch the shroud. A frail white leg was uncovered. The shroud was torn to pieces for relics and Khomeini's son Ahmad was knocked from his feet. Men jumped into the grave. At one point, the guards lost hold of the body. Firing in the air, the soldiers drove back the crowd, retrieved the body and brought it back to the helicopter. But mourners clung on to the landing gear before they could be shaken off. 
Just absolute chaos. To me, having the deceased fall out of the coffin onto the ground and robbed doesn't set the mournful tone for the funeral that you'd wish for. <laughs> so Ayatollah Montezeri was chosen by Khomeini to succeed him as supreme leader four years before he died. But Montezeri blew it when he called for more liberal policies and told Khomeini, your prisons are far worse than those of the Shah. So he didn't get the gig. <laughs> he was dropped as next in line. So instead, Khomeini chose Ali Khamenei to be his successor. Not because he liked how confusingly similar their names are, but because Khamenei is also an ultra-conservative, he is supreme leader of Iran still today. Uncle Ian, it's time to choose which of our dictators go through to the next round. We've got Pope Alexander and his lustful orgies against Khomeini and his banning of miniskirts. It's interesting because each of them has elements of dictator bingo. The the bribery, the corruption, um, the nepotism of Pope Alexander VI, whereas with Khomeini you look at the repression. There's an element of rewriting history with Khomeini as well. He had made promises about it being a more democratic regime under Islam. Those were promises that he didn't keep. I look at the repression of the Iranian people and I, th- I think he's the worst of the two. Alexander certainly enriched himself in the classic fashion of a dictator, much more than Khomeini did. Khomeini wasn't interested in earthly materials. Everything he did was for what would happen in the next life. He used his authority to get in the good books with his God to enrich himself in the next life. I'd much rather live in uh, 16th century Rome than Iran under Khomeini. Many more orgies to frequent. Or at least to read about in the newspaper. Yeah. Plus, you've got a chance of becoming a cardinal. (laughs) He kept expanding the numbers. Anything can happen. No, you're right. I think you're going to have to go Khomeini. And also, in terms of historical significance, we don't really know where this Islamic Republic will lead. I think you look at Alexander VI, when you find out that he's got the name Borgia, then we know there was some graft and some corruption and some behind-the-scenes shenanigans. But the papacy at that time was sort of par for the course. Not saying that makes it right in respect of Khomeini, his foreign policy during the early 1980s with the Iran-Iraq war, the US support for Iraq, that gave Saddam an opportunity to look at his place in the Middle East and the possibility of expanding, hence the the Gulf Wars and the ongoing instability in that region. I think Khomeini's got to take a lot of the responsibility for that. Well, I think we've decided then. Ayatollah Khomeini has beaten Pope Alexander VI, and Khomeini remains in the contest to be crowned history's biggest dictator. The irony in that, I think, is Khomeini probably wouldn't want to remain in the contest, but Alexander probably would. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You can just picture him. He'd hate to be kicked out. Next week. Let's talk about next week, Uncle Ian. Something big is happening next episode. We're going back to Russia. We're going back to Russia. It means the next matchup is Vladimir Putin up against Joseph Stalin. That almost needs a drum roll. Vladimir Putin, Joseph Stalin, back in Russia. Here we go. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Uncle Ian. See you next week.
Quick shout out before we go. If you remember episode six, Henry VIII, we had Steph help us cover Henry. Steph has just given birth to a beautiful baby boy, baby Charlie. This episode is dedicated to baby Charlie. 